you don't see Pastor Max this morning because he is preaching at Trinity's Northside Parish. And so we just remember him and pray for him that the word would be preached there boldly as well. So let me, um, yeah, read scripture and then pray and jump into this sermon. So we're going to read from Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are good. We breathe in your goodness and we acknowledge that you are here, present in each of us and present among us this morning as we have prayed to you, as we have sung to you, and as we will try to bring understanding in the depths of our being to your word that is God-breathed and good for us. Be among us in a special way in this time. Lord, we continue to pray for Emma and the Henley family. We continue to say to you things that you already know, Lord, which is that we desire for her complete and total healing, and we desire for comfort and care and peace to be resting on this family in this season. And Lord, we know that you can do that. Lord, we pray for Pastor Mac as he's away, that you would be with him, that you would enliven him and embolden his spirit as he preaches your word. And Lord, be with me as I attempt to communicate the things that you've shared from your heart in the scriptures in a way that the hearer would not just understand in their head, but be moved in their heart and their hands would be willing to join you where you're at work in the world. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege we have to gather as a church family. We pray for those who are not able to be here physically with us this morning, that you would be with them in special ways wherever they are, and tangibly remind them, as you are reminding all of us, of the depth and the height and the breadth of your love for us. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Amen. So my youngest son, Theodore, he is four years old. And he has the incredible imagination. It's one of my favorite things about Theodore. And it's quite often in our home that in his mind, he's become something else, some other character. And whatever character has become is animating and motivating the decisions that he's making in his life. So, for instance, it may be time for bed, and I may say something like, Hey, Theodore, come brush your teeth. And he'll reply, I'm mousy. And mouses do not brush their teeth. And as cute as this is, I have the tough job, as all parents do, of reminding my son that he's not, in fact, a mouse. He is a human, 
And if he doesn't brush his teeth, then bad things will happen inside of his mouth. And while this is a silly story, it points to this idea that I want to get at this morning, that our identity, what we believe about who we are, can add a sense of direction or purpose to our lives. And the importance of this is what we're going to be exploring in the text. So the big idea this morning is this, that an identity of wholeness empowers us to embody and activate the kingdom of God. An identity of wholeness is what allows us, empowers us to embody and activate the kingdom of God. Another way to say this would be who we believe we are shapes the way we live. A third way to say this may be before you know what you can do in the kingdom, you must know who you are in the kingdom. Jesus understood this as deeply as anyone. Our gospel passage this morning finds us in a scene that is familiar in the gospels and is probably familiar to us. Jesus is in a debate and a teacher of the law hears what he said, is impressed by what he said, and he asks Jesus the million dollar question, which is the most important commandment. Now I want to talk about the question itself for a moment and just kind of get into the context of the tradition and the time that this question is being asked. So this is not an intellectual question, right? This is not a let me check your understanding of something question. This isn't like how we would understand a catechism call and response type question. This question is a question to understand something bigger. It's a question to understand what's the foundation of your understanding of the law or what God has told us to do. How do you understand that? What's the frame that you're looking through? And then how do you build on that frame? So this is a really big question on the surface, but it's even bigger underneath. There's a gravity to it. A similar question in our day may be something like, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Right? Because what you believe about whether the Lord was resurrected or not will impact everything else you believe about what the Lord is able to do in your life. So in a very similar way, Jesus is answering this question. He's shedding light for us on how we're to understand the commands of God and where we're to root our identity so that we can be moved from that place. So his answer reveals something very important about identity and about its relationship to our activity inside our hearts and outwardly towards others. So I'll read his response again in verses 29. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus' words here are actually the beginning of a prayer that is intricately woven into Jewish identity. It's a prayer that some of it comes from that uh, passage in Deuteronomy that we read this morning. It's called the Shema. And the Shema is a prayer that Jewish people still to this day say every morning and every evening from memory. It's three entire sections or paragraphs of the scriptures. There are some uh, groups of Jews in Judaism who actually will they will add a phrase to it to make the number of words the exact number of parts in the human body. It's so important to their understanding of everything that they are and everything they are to be in the world. 
And so when we understand it that way, it becomes more than just a, a creedal prayer. It's more than just a belief statement. It's more than just saying, like, I believe that God is one. It's best understood as an identity story. It's important to this community. And so when Jesus recites it, it not only affirms his understanding of his own identity, but for the hearer, it locates them within the narrative of Scripture. So they're immediately rooted, and everything else he says after that, they hear it from that frame. Now, you've probably heard me say this before. The reality for all of us is that we are being formed. The question is, by what and into what? Our identities are constantly being bombarded with messages that are shaping the core set of beliefs that we live from. And whether we're aware of it or not, It is happening to you. And so the Shema for Jewish people was this declaration of the ways in which they understood their identity and they would purposely choose to be formed in this way so that they would purposely choose to follow the commands of God, which God had set out for them and said, these are good for you. These are for you to live. This is how you choose life, by following me. And so it's very important that we understand this so that we have a firm footing to move forward. The Shema, the first section is this, and I want to read it again even though we read it this morning. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. It was so important for this people that they found their identity, their movement in the world, to be hanging on every word that God had said. And to move out in that way. And the rest of the Shema goes on to describe the nature and activity of the relationship between God and the people of God. And so by saying it daily, saying it multiple times, committing it to memory, it became a part of their identity and a part of their being. And this is the dynamic that they were grasping that I want us to grasp today. That God, whose whole, created them to be whole. The God who's whole created us to be whole. That this wholeness forms a unified relationship with God. And in that unity of heart, soul, mind, and strength, we could embody and we could activate the kingdom of God here on earth now. Here's how Jesus talks about this more in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says this, I've given them the glory you've given me, that we may be one, they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and you've loved me even as you've loved me. Father, I want you to give those who've given to me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus understood this idea that we are not ever to understand our identity apart from God. That it was always meant to be in unity with God. And we were always meant to move from that place. It's to acknowledge that our wholeness is an identity. Our wholeness is a birthright. Our wholeness is who we are. And it empowers us and it animates us and it moves us out into the world around us. Ultimately, friends, they're understanding this and they're acknowledging this. 
And I want us to be able to acknowledge it this morning. Our identity is not primarily about what we have done, what we are doing, or what we will do. Let me say that a different way. Your identity is not about what you have done. It's not about what you're doing. It's not about what you will do. Your identity, our identity, is about who God is, what God has done in the world, what God is doing in the world, and what we know God is ultimately going to do. That is the centerpiece of our identity. And when we get that in the right order, we're empowered and we're activated to move from this place and into the world. So here this morning, the invitation is to live from this identity. To not just learn another interesting thing in the scriptures, it's full of them. But internalize, internalize, realize, understand that God lovingly created you. A God of wholeness created you for wholeness. You were lovingly formed in your mother's womb by a God who rescues, redeems, and restores. That's who God is, and that's who we are meant to be. So then this means that we can hear the commandments of God as loving invitations to participate with God. Not as something to begrudge, not as something that we have to do, but something that we may do. It is an exciting invitation to be with God where God's working in the world. And so Jesus uses that platform to then make two more invitations that I'll make to you this morning. The first we see in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So the first invitation Jesus makes there through the commands is to embody love for God. Take love for God into your very being. Friends, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is not a call out. It's a call in. It's to say, come in, live in, live out of this belief. And it's good news. To embody the kingdom is to say, I'm going to live. I'm going to choose to live in a way that all of my life reflects that I've made Jesus Lord and I'm allowing him to rule and reign over every part of me. I'm allowing the Lordship of Jesus to rule and reign, to motivate and direct my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, all of it. There's a couple of ways to think about this practically. I'll give a few examples. Maybe you've heard somebody say before, uh, tell me how you spend your time and I can tell you what you love, right? And we all have responsibilities, so I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about like if somebody said to you, you get three hours, and all the parents said amen, you get three hours to go do whatever you want to do, no cost, like anything, what would you do? This will reveal something about what you love. Another way you may have heard this said is uh, money. Look at your budget or think about how you spend your money or tell me how you spend your money and I can tell you what you love. Right, again, all responsibilities aside, we know we have things we need to take care of, but how we spend our resources that God's given us indicates something about what we love or about what we believe. Now, there's a third way to understand this, which kind of circles back to the beginning. It's the activity of your life. It, it reveals something about your core beliefs. So what does the activity of your life look like? It's an opportunity to look under the hood lovingly with Jesus and examine and say, what's my thinking life or my heart life or my activity life? 
What's that revealing about the things that I love or the things that I value? A way to ask this might be, do the patterns of my life represent an embodiment for love of God? Do the patterns of my life represent an embodiment of a love for God? I'll ask it a simpler way, but probably a more challenging way. Would anyone know that I love God based on the way that I live? Would anyone know that you love God based on the way that you live? And again, this is not a call out, it's a call in. It's a call to to fully acknowledge that while we don't do this great, we always have the invitation of Jesus to come in and think about it again. And I want to acknowledge as well that there are some big challenges to living this way. I am not ignorant to that. So I want to name a couple. The first, sin. Sin dilutes our identity. Let me define sin this way. Sin is any time that we actively or passively operate against the kingdom of God. Anytime we actively or passively operate against the ways of Jesus, we dilute and distort the identity of wholeness that we were born from and born for. What's an example of this? Jesus talks about it. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But even if you have hate in your heart, it is as if you have murdered. Jesus also says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you have lust in your heart, You have committed adultery. What Jesus is doing this, he's reminding us how destructive and how disintegrating that sin can be when we passively or actively operate against the way of the kingdom. It begins to destroy our identity. It begins to rip us apart and into pieces and fragment our lives in such a way that we have trouble knowing what's up, what's down. And the major damage that's done, including the damage to those around us often from our sin, is the damage that's done to our identity. Because we stop believing who we were made to be and we start believing all these other things about ourselves that just are not true. See, wholeness is about having an identity of a unity. And when we sin, we begin to divide up our identity. We begin to say, this piece can serve this God and this piece can serve this God and this God and this God. And we can't love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. When we sin, We're operating against the kingdom because we're living into lesser identities. We're saying shame is the identity I'm going to live of, or abandonment is the identity I'm going to live out of, or trauma is the identity I'm going to live out of. And those are not the identities from which you've been made or from which you've been called to live. We begin to believe that our identity of wholeness is gone or lost, and we begin to believe that we're separated from the one that makes us whole. We begin to start looking for what we are meant to find in God outside of that relational context, that identity context. And so we break down. We disintegrate. We dilute. Maybe you see that happening in your life. Maybe you're thinking about areas right now where that's happening. And friends, I want to say this this morning. We're not without hope. Sin does not make us a people without hope because sin, as destructive as it is, it cannot ultimately change our identity. Let me help by reframing the way we think about sin for a moment. 
Perhaps you've approached sin either on your own or someone else has presented it to you this way in such a way that the primary question has become, what is wrong with you? There may be other ways that they've said it, but what your heart hears or what you're hearing this morning, even maybe right now when I'm talking about it, is, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? Here's the problem with that. This puts us into fix-it mode. This puts us into behavior modification mode, right? Like if I can just change this or, or do that differently or respond differently the next time somebody does that thing I don't like. Don't do this, do that, and everything will be good. And do not hear me wrong, please. There are behaviors that need to change in our lives. But I believe that God wants more than just our right thinking and our right behavior. God wants, Jesus says it, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So it's not just about what you do. It's about so much more. Sin is so much more damaging. And so do not reduce it to an exercise of behaviors or tasks. Because you will get it wrong and you'll let it persist and you will let your life and your identity disintegrate to the point when you no longer know your name. And so I want to offer a different way, another approach. What if the primary question around sin in your life became, what happened to you? What happened to me? What if we communicated to ourselves and to others that something has caused disintegration or dilution to our identities and our choices and our habits and our patterns are something that we need to be curious about and not critical of? Something we need to get curious about and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where am I hurting? Where am I broken? Either by decisions I've made or decisions that other people have made But those places that hurt are what are causing me to look for something outside of the context of wholeness. And this is where things are going wrong. And friends, I just want to invite you, if you're thinking in those realms and you're feeling those places, maybe even as you sit here, to invite Jesus, the tender hands of Jesus, to tend to those wounds. And provide healing and wholeness because it's what he came to offer. And I just want to make an additional note here that this may be something that if you've never explored or you've never thought about this way, you may need to partner with somebody professionally to do this. So this would be a time when you may think about how you pursue a professional counselor, a spiritual director, pastoral counseling, or some combination thereof. To sit with someone and say, hey, here's the patterns and habits in my life. I acknowledge, I recognize that there are things that I I want to change. But I want to change them from a perspective of getting to the wholeness and the healing and the identity that Jesus has called me into. And I want to get this as close to right as I can on this side of eternity so that I can live as a whole person. And that can be a really helpful process. Friends, sin is challenging, but we are not without hope. A second challenge is this. Evil or pain, simpler maybe, bad things happen. And it is frustrating. We hear that scripture this morning. We hear God say, 
Follow these commands and it will go well with you. And you look at your life and it's not well. And you say, I'm following God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. But God, this hurts. This world is broken. And why is this still happening? I want to embody this kingdom love for God, but I don't feel like God is holding up his end of the bargain. If God's good, if God is whole, then why do I feel broken or why am I experiencing brokenness? Yes. Yes. Let's just name that. That is a challenge. This has been and it will be a question that we continue to ask probably for all of our lives and we will probably perhaps want to ask Jesus when we see him face to face. But I just want to submit to you as best I can my understanding of how Jesus deals with this question. It's in John 16, 29 to 33. And uh, this is not a Jesus juke. This is just what Jesus actually said. Jesus said to his disciples, or sorry, then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see. You know all things. You don't even need to ask have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming, and in fact, you will be scattered, each to your own home. He's talking about the disciples abandoning him there. You will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. My Father is with me. Verse 33, I've told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there are no sweeter words probably in all of Scripture, no more balmy words for our weary souls than Jesus saying, I have overcome the world. Friends, the greatest comfort I can offer you, the best response to this challenge is to understand and hear from Jesus himself that, yes, in this world we're going to have trouble, but take heart, because he's overcome the world. And this doesn't mean that we smile it all away. It doesn't mean that we act like nothing hard is happening in our lives. It means that bad things, evil, dark, nonsensical pain, happens in our life. But it is absolutely not in opposition to the idea that God's actively working. That's absolutely not in opposition to the idea that God is still inviting you in your pain to submit your life to him and to work with him both inwardly and outwardly to bring wholeness to this world. When we live embodying the kingdom, the fruit of this is, we're going to begin to activate the rule and reign of God in the world around us. The kingdom of God will be moving outward. When we yield our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, we personally as beings become outposts for God's kingdom and we begin to be the ones that answer to that darkness that Jesus says he has overcome. And we activate ourselves in view of the second commandment and the second invitation Jesus shares this morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, neighbor love is the activation of God's kingdom, and it is the fruit of lives that embody God's 
kingdom. Again, let's dig around in the story. Jesus, in his inclusion of the command to love here, is elevating this to the identity of his followers in particular. He's saying this is how you will be known. Jesus is saying, I'm going to put skin on the law. I'm going to put skin on the Torah. I'm going to help you see all the things that I already said to you and that you wrote down, but you're having trouble living out amongst yourselves. I'm going to help you see what that looks like in the way that I live. And Jesus walks out perfect, self-sacrificing love, and he finds his grounding, though, in what God's already communicated in Scripture. This is in Leviticus 19.18, and if you actually go and read Leviticus 19, it's a whole chapter on neighbor love. It's a whole chapter on what justice looks like. It's a whole chapter on what it looks like to include the excluded. So Jesus is not going any further than what's already being said, but he's saying, I'm going to get in and I'm going to be a living, breathing example of this for you. And I'm going to provide you, again, the context by which to evaluate how this is going for you in your life when you look at my life. So how is neighbor love going for you? Do the patterns and habits of your life reflect neighbor love? Maybe in the same way that I asked the question earlier, would anyone know that you loved your neighbor based on the way you live? Ask yourself that question sometime this week. Would anyone know that I love my neighbor based on the way I live? Again, hear me clearly. This is not a call out. It's a call in. It's saying let's evaluate our neighbor love. Let's assess what are are we believing about God and how is that motivating the activity and the movement of our life so that it becomes more than just checking a box. It becomes more than just patting ourselves on the back. It becomes an assessment of whether or not we're activating God's kingdom around us or not. And that's kind of a big deal. A few years ago, we had the opportunity to preach a sermon series at the beginning of the year on the three core values of Redeemer. Gospel, community, neighbor. Gospel, community, neighbor. And it's a privilege to be one of the pastors of this church. We, I believe that we do this as well as we do anything, that we walk out neighbor love. But I'm sure we do not do this perfectly. And so I want to provide a few examples of how incredible you all are and the things that I've seen you guys doing because I, I, I believe that's often what we miss in some of these things is we hear Jesus is like this uh, angry ruling voice or whatever voices we hear in our life and we don't hear that Jesus is always just inviting us to see more of the kingdom. And so I'm just going to like open the book a little bit and, and share about how the kingdom is moving forward from this place. For years before this was even a church, so probably a decade ago, whether it was Vine City Vipers basketball or whether it was flag football or whether it was pancake breakfast at the Henley's little house up on the hill, Drew and Diane and many others moved into this community. They listened and they asked hard questions. They prayed. And from a posture of neighbor love, they made the decision to even plant this church. I've had the privilege of sitting in meeting after meeting with Drew over the years, and someone comes in um, from all kinds of things, asking to, to use the building over on Vine Street. And I don't think Drew ever asked very many questions at all 
just always said yes. We would prefer this building be used by the community than just sit here. That's neighbor love. And I've watched him faithfully steward and neighbor in that way. A couple of years ago, there was a young person in our community that took their own life here beside Joseph Lowry, not less than 100 yards from here. As we started to learn more about that situation, we found out that the family had ties to a family at Peace Prep. And so further in, we we got a request from the family to host the repast meal, which is the meal after the service here at the building. And I said yes without hesitation, only because I knew I could call on Redeemer people to help. And I watched. I watched people set up chairs. I watched people bring food. I watched people serve that meal. I watched the line out the door and to the side. And I watched how you all loved on this family that you had no connection to. There was no bait and switch. It was just, this is what it means to love our neighbor, to sit with you and mourn with you and be with you and love on you. That's neighbor love. Another example we've been privileged to see is Christy's heart and her leadership coming up in our midst. What started as potlucks and these incredible parties from this outreach committee became her continuing to challenge us as she's come on staff to ask the deeper questions about neighbor love. And so much so that when we faced the global pandemic that we're still wrestling through, she jumped into action and she lined us all up so that we could keep loving and serving the most vulnerable around us. The food pantry, the pen pals, blankets, whatever it is. But more than that, it's her heart, it's Christy's heart to sit in our staff meetings and always ask us the question, what about our neighbors? That's neighbor love. I think about Rachel. I think about intercessory prayer. I think about Leon. I think about his mom. I think about the ways that you all fill fill up the meal trains before I can even click on the link. And all of this is neighbor love. And friends, this neighbor love is in our DNA. It is our identity. And so it's my privilege just to call us in to say, how can we continue leveraging and how can we even level up? How can we do more and more to activate God's kingdom in our midst? Friends, my heart this morning is is not to to tell you to serve from compulsion or coercion. It's to serve from your identity of wholeness. It's to love your neighbor because you've been loved. And that love was meant to be given away. It's who you are. It is who you are. Friends, love is the stuff we're made of. And Jesus is the word that became flesh and showed us what that looks like. This is the gospel. It's gospel, community, neighbor, the gospel, self-sacrificing love. And Jesus is the one making the invitation this morning to neighbor love. Jesus is the one who demonstrates neighbor love when he carries his cross to a shameful and gruesome death. But the outflow of that movement and his resurrection, this is about identity, friends. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Darkness is overcome. 
A way has been made for us to be in right relationship with God and with others. Jesus activated God's kingdom agenda. And today he invites us to activate God's kingdom agenda in our lives. Say it another way. Jesus was crucified so that we could live cruciform. Right relationship with God vertically and right relationship with others horizontally. So the call to neighbor love is just the call to live out the gospel. It's not fancy. No bells and whistles. It's just to live out the gospel, to do as Jesus did. As that Hebrews text said this morning, he sacrificed once for all. One application this morning, in addition to the two earlier questions for examination, is to marinate in Romans 12. So if you are hearing the things that I'm saying and you're kind of like, it's okay, thank you for the pep talk, I'll I'll look under the hood. Um, I would also invite you to spend some time in Romans 12. So Romans 12 is this beautiful passage where Paul captures this essence of what self-sacrificing love looks like and what it means to have an embodied presence in the world. When I taught middle school, I had 7th graders memorize the message version of Romans 12. So over the course of the year, we would say this every single morning until the point that they memorized it and to the point that as a community of learners, we could call each other out on this neighbor love thing. How's it going for us? Let's have peace as much as it depends on me. Let's love without a mask. Let's step into the story of God, right? And Romans 12 is such a good picture of that. So whether you read it once every morning, maybe try to memorize a sentence or two from it, but just spend some time there this week and do some of that evaluation on on neighbor love and God love and what does this look like with skin on? What does it look like to live like Jesus, which is the question we're trying to wrestle with every week as followers of Jesus. So marinate in Romans 12. I said one application, but there's kind of two. We're going to transition down here um, to the table. The second application is to remember your identity. Remember your identity. Every week, we're reminded of our identity in this meal. It's at this meal that Jesus, who demonstrated self-sacrificing love and faithfulness, feeds us. He says, draw from me. Remember me. So remember your identity this week. If you've forgotten or if you've never heard that you were beloved, remember that this week. A great picture of this, if you're a movie person, is from the movie Coco. It's a movie celebrating Dia de los Muertos, which is tomorrow, the Day of the Dead. And celebrations, holidays, all about remembrance, remembering those who've passed on. And there's this beautiful picture at the end of the movie where Grandma Coco is almost lifeless, just kind of hunched over in a chair, eyes closed. And the main character, this little boy, gets his guitar and he starts to play this this song. Recuerdo me. Remember me. And as he's playing it, each note he's plucking with his fingers, you can see Grandma Coco coming back to life. You see her sit up a little bit. You see her smile on her face. You see her start to sing the words. And then you see her open her eyes. And so maybe this morning you've sort of fallen asleep or you're sort of dying in in this sense of identity and purpose and you don't remember who you are. 
And I want this meal, the liturgy and the meal itself, to serve as that song to wash over you and remind you and call you back into life as you remember that Christ died for you, that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. And he died, but he's coming again. And in this meal, we celebrate the tensions of life that it's hard, it's dark, we're wrestling, we're weeping, we're hoping, but it will all one day be made new. Let's pray. God, you're so good to love us first, to create us in love. You're so good to invite us to understand that love tangibly. You're so good to invite us to live a life devoted to you and in perfect union with you. And you're so good that you made everything that would stand in our way go away. You made it completely possible for us to just submit to you and join you in a life of perfect unity. And you did all that work. And all we need to do is believe. And so I pray this morning that someone would believe. And that someone would believe again. I pray for our remembrance. And I pray for identities. That they would be restored and redeemed and renewed. Because there's not anything that you can't restore, redeem, and renew. And would you do it because it's who you are. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Amen, friends. As we turn our hearts towards the communion table this morning, as we do.